This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's Infant Toddler Development Series Part 3. And this is three of, I think, six parts. Um, we're going to be moving on to a depression series next, and I'm going to add the other three parts as additional podcasts that I, I throw in there throughout the week, and they will be videos that are in the on-demand class. But this is the last Infant Toddler Development um, presentation that we're going to do in this series. So today is going to be a little bit more fun. We're going to define the issues and trends related to assessment of young children with disabilities, describe characteristics of and various formats for effective observation. We'll describe the critical role the family plays in the screening, evaluation, and assessment processes, identify strategies to establish a collaborative partnership with the family, Describe effective communication principles, discuss scaffolding and goal prioritization, and assist the family in accessing services in the most natural service delivery environments. So, challenges and opportunities. As you can imagine, when you are working with a child, if you haven't done this before, um, there, there are a lot of challenges. And when you're working with a child birth to three, there are a lot more challenges. A lot of times they're not very verbal. They have very short attention spans. They have limited expressive skills. I mean, they can talk a little bit, but a lot of it is nonverbal. And sometimes the nonverbals, you know, that Sally does are not the same as the nonverbals that Tom does. So we need to be relying on parents to help us interpret what's going on. Children also struggle with separation issues at this period. So when you're doing that arena assessment, getting the child to be willing to leave mom or dad's lap could be challenging. And sometimes you need to do that to assess gross motor skills and all that, all that type of stuff. And children at this age exhibit a wide range of typical behaviors. When you think about it, I mean, as we grow up, Every year, you know, becomes a little less consequential. When I, you know, turned 47, it wasn't as consequential, you know, from when I was 46. But when I was one and I turned two, there was a lot of stuff going on. 
So in this short period of time, children are just growing and changing and developing by leaps and bounds. But those leaps and bounds, you know, some sometimes they may be like this, and sometimes they may be, you know, like this. And we've talked about before the fact that cognitively they may advance for a little while and then physically, and generally everything doesn't advance at exactly the same rate. So we need to be cognizant both individually between children, but also culturally, what is appropriate for the child at that age. The continuity and stability of the behavior of infants and toddlers varies from hour to hour and day to day. And, you know, if you've had small kids, you know this. Some days they are just completely disorganized and, you know, have a really hard time following directions. Other times they are Johnny on the spot. Sometimes it's due to the environment. You know, if they are in a new environment, it can be overstimulating. Sometimes it could be they're getting ready to get sick, and especially at this age, they can't really tell you what's going on. Um, and sometimes they've just had, you know, a stimulating day so far, and they're worn out earlier than usual. So they may behave differently at 8 in the morning than they do at 2 in the afternoon. Heck, I do when I'm a grown-up. Many providers have difficulty accepting the role of the family in the evaluation and assessment process. That was never an issue for me <laughs> because I really valued and relied on their interpretation of what was going on and is this typical of how Johnny behaves because what we see sometimes in the assessments, again, even if it's in the child's natural environment, is going to be different because we are not normally in the child's natural environment. So there is something very different. So I really want to encourage the family, not just a caregiver, if you are lucky enough to be able to do this arena assessment in the child's home where you're, you've got siblings and, you know, caregivers and all those people, I really want to hear their input to get an idea of what's going on. The child is seen in the context of the familial, cultural, and community systems which change as the child develops. You know, think about it. When, and, and I remember when my children were infants and they were not mobile. Oh, that was so wonderful in some ways because I didn't have to worry. I knew they were safe. And as soon as they started getting mobile, then, you know, the entire environment changed a little bit that they were in. The things that they could do changed a little bit. So what a, you know, a six-month-old does for a play date is very, very different than what a two-year-old does for a play date. Um, so it's important to pay attention to that. As a child develops, they're nonverbal initially. And they communicate through gestures and what have you. But once they become verbal and they can interact, guess what? Now they can interact with people other than their primary caregivers, for the most part. And those people understand. So their social circle suddenly starts to just explode. So a lot of stuff changes as the child develops. So we need to consider the transaction and reciprocity between the child, family, culture, and community. So when the child goes into a situation, however the child is, just you know, plop him in that situation, how does he impact that family? And how does that family impact him? So if the child is a high-needs child and is, goes into this family, it could add extra stress onto the family 
could add some conflict between caregivers and resentment from siblings, yada, yada. So with all that stuff going on, how does that impact the child? And a lot of times it means the child is probably not going to get as much warmth as it could in other situations. So when the child doesn't get as much warmth, how does that affect the child and how does that child affect the situation? And a lot of times we see, see a downward spiral because then the child is going to become more demonstrative, needing that comfort, needing that caregiving. And the family is going to become more frustrated and it's just this vicious tug of war. So we do want, want to take a look at that and see if we can help parents, if we can help families adjust to the child um, and the child adjust to the environment because the child is eventually going to have to adjust when he or she goes to daycare or school. That's a different environment, a different community. So we want to look at that. Be observant of the secondary effects of the disability on the child. So if the child has a primary disability or two, um, you know, that's what we're looking at initially. But we want to also look at how it's impacting the child cognitively, socially, um, physically, and, and make sure that we're attending from a biopsychosocial perspective. And we want to make sure that assessment of English language learners and children from different cultures focuses on observation and informal procedures. So if English is not their primary language, don't get too hung up if the parents are having difficulty communicating something to you or if the child, you know, seems to be having difficulty communicating because if that's not their primary language, you know, think about if you were operating in an environment that wasn't your primary language. So we do want to look at, rely a lot on observation. Is the child able to get their needs met? Is the child able to do physical things that they're supposed to do, etc.? So three major purposes of observation. To understand a child's behavior. Sometimes you just need to see it because behavior has a purpose. Behavior has a function. We, need, we just need to understand why. What is the benefit to this behavior? What, what's the child trying to get? by doing this behavior, um, or what is prompting this behavior. Um, understand children's development. When we observe children, then we can understand a little bit more about what's going on with them, and we can evaluate their progress. So we're going to observe their behavior and get some hallmarks on their development, and then we're going to evaluate their progress through continued observation. For young children who haven't mastered the use of language and can't explain the reasons for their behavior, observers gain a great deal of insight by watching and taking detailed notes. And it's hard for a lot of people to really understand the scope of what we're looking at. When we're talking about taking detailed notes, it's not just, you know, who Johnny was interacting with, but we also want to pay attention to what time of day was it, um, you know. Where were we? What environment were we in? We want to pay attention to as many of the stimuli as possible to figure out if there's something that might be triggering Johnny. Because maybe he's normally does really good in this particular activity. But today, he is just having a hard time keeping his hands to his own body. And so we want to look around and we want to try to get an idea of... Has anything changed in the environment? Has anything changed with Johnny? Is he interacting with somebody different? And then we also want to look backwards and think, 
you know, is there something else going on? Maybe Johnny didn't get enough sleep last night. You know, talk to mom and see what happened. You know, write down little questions. Or that's what I suggest that that um, my people do is write down little questions about what else might have prompted this behavior. A good observer pays attention to the context as well as the frequency of a behavior. Facial expressions of the children, their actions, and their reactions. This is so important with all children, but especially with infants who, you know, when they start getting angry or overstimulated, all they can do is cry, go to sleep, or avert their gaze, or something similar. The only way they can remove themselves from the situation is to basically shut, out, shut it out in a sensory sort of way. So we do want to pay attention to the context and the frequency. If something happens once, okay, we'll keep an eye on it. If something happens twice, I'm a little more concerned. If something happens repeatedly, then that's a pattern that we may need to address. So we do want to pay attention to that. So going back to Johnny, who's having a hard time keeping his hands to his own body this day, if that's just that day and normally... Johnny has no problem with this. You know, that's a contextual thing. And I want to try to figure out what's different about this context that's prompting Johnny to have these problems. While observing, the observer records information about the child's strengths and perhaps areas of skills that have not been attained. So, you know, if he's asking a lot of questions, well, that's good. It may show challenges with interpersonal communication if he's dominating and you know rapid fire questions but the good thing is he's curious so we're going to identify this curiosity and figure out how we can harness it to help us achieve our goals observation is an excellent tool to determine progress and accomplishment of certain milestones and goals let me see it kids for the most part a lot of what we're talking about with development is is Stuff that we can see, we can observe their interactions, we can observe their physical skills, we can observe, you know, through listening, their ability to articulate different words and put sentences together. So observation is great. You're not going to do much with interviewing a child and trying to ask them, you know, can you string three words together? They're just kind of going to kind of look at you. So we do a lot of observing. Okay, so types of observation that we can use. And if you're not used to working with children, and, you know, I'm going to go off on a diatribe here real quick for just a sec. You know, I find it interesting that we have to have special certifications and training and everything and special licenses in order to do things like hypnotherapy and sex therapy and those sorts of things. But we don't have a special license for working with children. And they are not little adults. So, you know... It, I think it's really important for those of us who were trained on adults, if we're going to work with children, to, you know, be more aware of different ways we can approach observation and assessment and intervention. So, observation. An anecdotal record is a written episode, episodic description of a child's behavior, event, or incident. So, these are like parent reports. You know, tell me what happened. You know, just kind of give me the, the rundown. Running records are, are when an effort is made to record everything that was said or happened within an observational period. So it's basically a transcription. If you have a video playing, you're transcribing what's happening. You're describing it in great detail. And it's just this running record of everything that's going on. 
Event sampling is when the observer records the frequency of the occurrence of the behavior of interest, so a tally. So how many times does Johnny get out of his seat? How many times does Johnny reach for the toy? Um, whatever it is. And, and you can just kind of tally that. A checklist is a list of sequential behaviors, and we can use this to determine whether the child exhibits behaviors or skills listed, such as greeting somebody. So this would be a checklist. If somebody comes in the door, did Johnny look up? If Johnny looked up, okay. Did Johnny smile or whatever? Okay. When the person talked to Johnny, did he imitate? You know, if the person said hi, did Johnny try to say hi back? Or generally it's like this at first. Um, and if so, okay. You know, that's our checklist of the steps in that particular activity. And rating scales are used to determine the degree to which a child exhibits a certain behavior or the quality of a behavior, such as their anxiety levels, their attention levels, or their motivation. And this is more of your, your Likert scale. On a scale of one to five, one being could not pay attention at all, two being paid attention up to 20% of the time. Three being paid attention 50% of the time, you see where I'm going. You want to anchor those rating scales. And a lot of the assessments that we're going to talk about today do have anchors on their rating scales. So it's not sometimes, always, and never, because that means different things to different people. So we want to get something very concrete. What percentage of the time did this happen? Information gathering is always an ongoing process, especially with children, because they develop so fast. Um, the dangers when we talk about observational assessment are observer bias because we go in and we have a preconceived idea of what we should see or what we shouldn't see. And, and again, we need to be culturally sensitive to that. But we can also be biased, and I really try to shield myself from this as much as possible when doing an observational report. Um, if we, for example, read the chart ahead of time and we see that Johnny has been having multiple problems with behavior, well, if, if we already have the idea in, um, in, their mind, in our minds about the fact that Johnny's going to have problems, then, ew, golly, we're probably going to see more of the problems. So we don't want to go in with a preconceived idea of how Johnny is or how Johnny's going to behave. And children's behavior may not be the same when being watched. My behavior is not the same when being watched. Um, you know, my husband says when I do these recordings, when I do recordings and I don't have students, I'm much less animated and, and stuff, which, you know, true. I mean, how much can you do by yourself? But children tend to be more, um, well, more or less they behave differently when they're being observed. And it's different, you know, sitting on a, a bench at the park, kind of keeping an eye and making sure Johnny doesn't get into trouble or get hurt. That's one thing. That's not observation. But when somebody is sitting next to you at the table in the classroom or even sitting in the corner of the classroom observing you, you tend to be more cognizant of what you're doing. So we can skew the observational reports. The early intervention provider should be continually modifying his or her understanding of a family's resources, priorities, and concerns in relation to their child and broader family issues. Because remember, we talked about a couple slides ago, 
if that family is experiencing broader issues like unemployment, discord, um, they don't like their job, whatever, and it's adding stress to the family, then it could be making it more difficult to attend emotionally and physically to the child's needs. And likewise, if things are going better, then they're probably going to be able to attend more easily. Sibling rivalry is another thing that can, if it starts to rear its head because the siblings are jealous that Johnny's getting so much attention, then it could create some uh, discord, which can impact the family as a whole and create a disruption. We also need to pay attention to the fact that people's priorities are going to change in relate in relation to the child's behaviors for example so when a child is younger and compliant and you know we'll go with non-mobile we'll go back to the real early stages you know i'm more worried about her learning to roll over and you know playing with toys and, and those sorts of things and being able to grasp i'm cool with that um when we get to being 18 months, two years old, and she is fully mobile, then my priorities and concerns are more about keeping her safe. You know, first I wanted her to move. Now I don't want her to move so much. Uh, so we want to continually ask parents, what are your priorities? What are your main concerns with the child right now? To provide services for infants and toddlers and their families in natural environments it's critical to involve the parents in the assessment process within the natural environment. It's not a natural environment if you pull the parents out of the situation because as soon as you leave, who's interacting with the children? The parents. So we need to make sure that we get the caregivers involved. We want to assess um, for trauma while we're doing this assessment. Look at the range and the timing of traumatic events for young children. You know, what is going on? Traumatic events can cause a lot of developmental delays. And if they have multiple traumatic events, you know, maybe they are in a, a very unsafe situation when they're born or when they're very, very young, and then they're traumatized again later on because they're put in foster care, and then they're traumatized again, you know, yada, yada. So this is what we're looking at. Um, we need to assess for a wide range of symptoms beyond PTSD. So we're going to look for risk behaviors. What do they do that might be risky? Um, functional impairments. What are they having difficulty doing? Are they having difficulty potty training? Are they having difficulty feeding themselves? Sometimes children will not want to progress because it means more of a distance between them and their caregiver. And if they're forcing their caregiver to feed them, if they're forcing their caregiver to dress them because they won't do it themselves, um, they're not developing those skills. So we do want to look at what's the, always go back to what is the benefit? What's the reward for this behavior? In, in what way is it benefiting them? The kid's not sitting there going, okay, now if I refuse to put on my pants, then mom has to do it for me it, it's, they don't think it out that much um at my kids dojang there are some kids in the little kids class that they're six seven years old and they're still not tying their own shoes they're still they walk out and they sit down and they wait for their parents to put their shoes on they have trained their parents quite clearly that if you want to get out of here in any sort of time frame you're going to have to do this for me so we do want to look, not saying those children were traumatized, just saying that children can 
affect parents' behavior and vice versa. We do want to look for functional impairments and developmental derailments that indicate that the child was unable to learn or to progress for some reason. It could be trauma, it could be illness, it could be a lot of things. Try to make sense of how each traumatic event might have impacted developmental tasks and derailed future development. So this can be challenging given the number of pervasive and chronic traumatic instances a child may have experienced throughout his or her young life. But we need to try. So if early on the child was um, put into foster care or, you know, experienced physical abuse, in what way did that hinder development? In what way did that hinder attachment and socialization? So, I mean, think about an infant who is the primary caregiver or a primary caregiver is physically abusing that infant or physically neglecting that infant. How does that impair the child's ability to, you know, interact socially? Because the child's saying, I need something. And the parent's going, go away, kid, you bother me. Or the child is saying, that hurts. I'm, I'm in a lot of pain. And the parent continues to inflict pain. So these are things the child may not be able to communicate as well. They may withdraw. You know, the safest thing is just to not do anything. So they may have restricted uh, gross motor development, etc. So we, we really want to look at how trauma might have impacted the child. And try to link traumatic events to trauma reminders that trigger symptoms or avoidant behavior. And trauma reminders can be remembered both in explicit memory, so they can talk about it or they'll act it out when they're playing, or out of awareness in the child's body and emotions if they just like tense up as soon as they see somebody or as soon as they go into a particular place. You might have an idea. Think about how your kid behaves sometimes, um, especially when they get a little bit older, when they go to the doctor's office, because when they're little, it's like every time they go to the doctor, it seems like they're getting a shot. And mine would get stressed out. And we'd talk about it, you know, when we were going in there, yeah, you're going to get a shot or no, you're not. And, you know, it, it would be what it would be. But you could see the reminders and, you know, Getting a shot is, is not all that traumatic. Everybody gets them. But something as, sim, as minor as a shot evokes a response. Imagine how something as major as physical abuse or sexual abuse or neglect would impact a child. So what, what things, what ways does trauma impact a child? Behaviorally, since most young children aren't good at verbalizing their feelings, Behavioral changes, including oppositional behavior, aggression, impulsivity, and self-destructive behavior, often indicate they are struggling with something. And it could be trauma. It could be pain. You know, we don't exactly know. But we do want to pay attention to it. So if you've got a child who suddenly starts biting or hitting or being oppositional, pay a little more attention. If a child suddenly starts becoming more oppositional and just not following directions and being whiny and irritable, you know, a lot of us know that that means something may be wrong. Um, for my kids, that usually was cue that they had an ear infection. But we do want to pay attention to behavioral issues. And this may not be a big change. If the child's been being traumatized or was traumatized at a young age, like real young, 
they may have always been oppositional, aggressive, impulsive, or self-destructive. We just want to look at those behaviors and go, okay, what is this child trying to communicate to me with this behavior? Because behavior is communication. Physically, kids who are exposed to repeated trauma may have physical developmental delays because they become hypersensitive to contact or may develop sensory motor problems and have somatic complaints like stomach aches and headaches and nausea and, you know, a variety of other things. Cognitively, trauma can cause kids to have increased difficulty paying attention, which leads to learning difficulties and delays in speech and language development. So all this stuff they need to communicate with other people and enrich their world starts becoming much more difficult to achieve if they can't function, if they can't. And physically, children may not sleep as much either if they're traumatized, and we know they need sleep to consolidate learning. Attachment. Children who've been traumatized often have trouble with relationships, boundaries, and empathy. And a lack of a consistent self, body image issues, low self-esteem shame and guilt all of these things and when we talk about traumas we want to look far and wide it's not just parental abuse it's not just neglect it can be you know in the news we've been hearing a lot about families that are separated at the border we hear a lot about these families that are coming to the united states because of an unsafe environment in where they're coming from where the child could have been traumatized by the unrest there. So there's a lot of different causes for trauma that we want to be, um, pay attention to. And you can go to the, I think it's, um, it's called ACEs Too High, to look at the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. And that identifies some common traumas, but not all of them are there. And most of those apply to slightly older children. So we really want to look and say, what would traumatize a three-month-old? Okay, linking assessments to interventions. Evaluation and assessment information is needed for planning and intervention. What do we use? You know, we've been talking about observations and, you know, all kinds of loosey-goosey stuff that sounds great. You know, we can make checklists, we can make this and that. The great thing is there are a lot of criterion reference instruments, such as the HELP, the Bailey, or the ELAP. Um, and I'll try to pull up... Um, and you can look at all of these later. Um, I know you don't want to spend time going through them right now. The HELP is the Hawaii Early Learning Profile, and you can select the 0 to 3, 3 to 6, um, behavioral characteristics progression, and it is set out, but not only is it an assessment, it's a curriculum. So you can identify deficits and all of these um, have some element of curriculum. You can identify de deficits that in the assessment and connect them to learning objectives so it's really plug and play if you will um, and then the bailey and that's the one that we used um, the bailey scales for infant and toddler development this is just an assessment but it does give you a lot of information and one more i'm going to show you real quick yes i want you to open it thank you and this is a free checklist that you can download and give to parents for birth to five and it helps parents feel a little bit more calm or have things that they can observe and check off and present to the pediatrician or present to the therapist and say, he's not doing these things or, or whatever. And that helps a lot of parents feel more calm and feel more engaged in the process. If they've got 
stuff to communicate. Assessment information for planning programs from individual infants and toddlers should be gathered from multiple sources and multiple perspectives. So your perspective and your resources are great, but we also want to get it from the family, ideally the pediatrician, and maybe even the child care provider. So what is the role of the family? Family members may assume the role of the interpreter of the child's behavior to professionals. When Sally does this, what does she, what does she mean? And some things are kind of universal, like the whole ear-pulling, thumb-sucking thing, but other times the behavior might not make sense. When my son was younger, um, very, very young, when he would get stressed out, he would literally bounce off walls. He would get stressed out, and he would run from one end of the room to the other, and he'd hit the wall. And like with his hands, he hit up against the wall and kind of bounce off, almost like you do a turn when you're doing laps in the pool, run to the other wall and do the same thing. So when he'd start doing that, it'd be like, okay, what's going on with you, little man? Um, and we could start talking about it. But when he got stressed, he had to move. He had to move fast. And, you know, it was hard to understand. When we would have groups over summer, summer, not summer, spring break sometimes we would have the parents bring their children with them if they didn't have childcare or whatever and the children may start acting out and my therapist would get really frustrated and obviously we we're just doing educational groups at that point but my parent my therapist would get really frustrated that the children would be fine up until group started and then they'd start acting out okay well let's use that as a learning opportunity what does that mean and a lot of times when the children were acting out, you know, they either wanted mom's attention or mom was getting uncomfortable for some reason and they were trying to distract from what was going on. Um, and there were other things that could have caused it. But I encouraged staff to really look and say, what is Junior trying to communicate by acting like this? The family or caregiver may be able to elicit a response or interact with the child that we can't elicit because we haven't been there. So we can ask them, when he exhibits this behavior, what is it that you do? Um, my son's preschool teacher could get him to wash his hands with, with no problem. I mean, it was hard to get him out of the bathroom. At our house, you know, it was like pulling teeth to get him to not only walk, you know, go to the sink to wash his hands, but to use soap. Um, what do you do differently? So different people can trigger different reactions, and we want to look at what's different. Families can generate a list of people, organizations, and agencies that they have contact with on a regular basis in order to do that eco-map. That way we know what kind of influences are coming in on the child and what kind of support the family has. And family members may be asked to participate by preparing in advance for a sharing session. So after the assessment, ask them to think about what were your overall impressions during the assessment. What did you think your child did well? What skills did you notice that your child needed help with? What seemed dis difficult? And did you notice anything that didn't seem to be typical of your child? And we can have them fill this out after every single session, or we can ask these questions of them at the end of every single session to get their input, you know, because we don't know what, it's, what the child's like the other six days and 23 hours of the week. Parents can suggest what the child likes to play and what their favorite toy is. Not every, child likes, not every child likes to play with cars or with blocks or whatever. So parents can give us an idea about if we want to engage this child to see 
certain skills, what's the best thing to do? And during the process, the parent may be the person to interact with the child in order to elicit a more typical response. After the session, parents should be involved in the discussion of the child's performance and how they view the next steps for intervention. You know, we've seen how Johnny did today. What is, you know, we're here, and we'll call this one. Where we want to go, that's 10. What do we need to do to get to a two? What's the next step that you would like to see Johnny take? So what can we observe during play assessments? We can observe children engaging in pretend play. We can observe curiosity and enjoyment. I mean, even when they're babies, if they're laying on their back and they're playing with the mobiles or something, you can see enjoyment and curiosity. You can see frustration levels and response. Some children will try putting a, a block in, into a hole once and it doesn't happen and they get frustrated and throw it down. Other children will continue to try to get that square peg in the circle for 10 minutes. So we can identify their frustration levels and intervene. We can see how long they can stay on task, developmentally appropriately, of course. We can look at interactions with peers if we're observing play at a playground or at the, the daycare. We can look at types of symbolic play, communication skills, how they use objects and toys. And remember, they're not necessarily going to use everything the way it's supposed to be, as, as we say as adults, supposed to be used. You know, a um, spatula can be used to dig with. And there's a lot of things you can use a spatula for besides flipping things. Um, and we just want to look at their creativity and how they use it and can they grasp it, can they make it do what they want. We'll be able to observe interactions with the facilitator, see how they deal with new people or less familiar people, task persi persistence, toy preferences, and problem solving. And we can get a lot of information from that, especially you know, my son when he was little had this sensory integration thing with ribbons. And he touched a ribbon one time on his first birthday, and it made him shudder from head to toe. And from there on out, he didn't want to have anything to do with anything that looked like a ribbon. Um, so, you know, that was a clue there, well, from the first time he shuddered, that there may be some issues going on. Um, but we can get an idea about what the child likes, because my daughter loved ribbons. When she was little, you know, she wanted to put ribbons on everything, and that just made her so happy. So we can figure out what they like, and we can also discern some things, like children who don't like to play in the sandbox. You know, it could be they just don't like the sand. It could be they don't like the feeling of the sand between their fingers or whatever. So we, we can get some more ideas. Cognitively, we want to, and going back here, look at can they discriminate when given a shape? Can they find another shape that is similar or different? Can they generalize things when they're given um, a cup? Can they find something that goes with it? It's like a baby GRE. Um, classification. Can they group similar items together based on a common trait? Can you put all the blocks together? And the way we always cleaned around, and around my house, um, you know, this is a useful, can be a useful skill for kids. If you're helping them do their chores and you say, we had bins for everything. We had bin, a bin for balls and a bin for blocks and a bin for action figures. So it wasn't super specific. And the kids could get the toys in the appropriate bins by classifying them. 
Sequencing. Can children put things in the correct order from a series of items, like biggest to smallest? Or, but we need to make sure it's, you know, something that makes sense to them. You're not going to have them organize crayons by intensity of hue. That, that doesn't make any sense to them. But biggest to smallest is good. Detail recognition. So if you give a child a picture, like a face without a mouth, can they recognize that the mouth is missing? If you give them a picture of a landscape and there's no sun there, do they recognize that the sun's missing? Vocabulary. For infants and toddlers, vocabulary development is often measured by naming or pointing to pictures of familiar objects. Uh, comprehension. Can the child demonstrate understanding of directions or certain situations, such as what is something with wheels that you ride in? Now, that's obviously much more advanced. A six-month-old isn't going to get most of these things because cognitively they're not there. But when you get up to the older, older ages, you know, you can have them identify, play I spy. We did that a lot. You know, I spy with my big brown eyes something that has four wheels that you ride in and, and go from there. And memory. These t items typically ask a child to repeat a phrase, several words, or numbers. So can they remember if you say one, two, three? What did I just say? One, two, three. Don't make it difficult, you know. It's not like a mental status exam for adults. But how does this cognitive stuff relate to their mental health? Well, it's going to help them assimilate into their environments. And we know that when children start to do poorly in school, their self-esteem also tends to take a hit, and they're much more likely to experience depression and anxiety and some other things, especially, you know, once they get into, you know, older grades, you know, not kindergarten, but a little bit older. So it's really important that we do assess them cognitively to help make sure that they are on track, culturally appropriate, of course, to be successful in school and to be successful with peers. Domains of motor assessment include gross motor skills, which gross motor is your large muscles, walking, rolling, etc. Functional gross motor skills include transferring from a wheelchair to the floor or the toilet. Can they, you know, get out of things? Uh, fine motor skills include the use of the small muscles, such as the fingers. So we want to, can the child reach, grasp, and release, which they can't do right away. You know, that's something that develops a little bit later. They use those skills, though, once they develop them, in order to eat, drink, and pick up small toy pieces. Some children takes a little bit longer to get there. Oral motor skills involve those with the mouth, tongue, teeth, facial, and jaw muscles. Milestones include sucking, swallowing, biting, and chewing. Preemies, for example, have a lot of difficulty with sucking. Um, not, sometimes it's because of their oral motor skills, and other times it's because when they start sucking, they forget to breathe. Either way, it can cause a delay here. And if they're having difficulty getting food in and swallowing it because their tongue keeps pushing the food out, then they may start experiencing nutritional deficits and physical growth delays. Motor assessments with very young children should assess functional motor skills as patterns of locomotion. Can they roll? Can they creep? And the child's ability to move in the environment 
to act on their environment and to make meaningful use of the information from their environmental interactions. So if we put the child on his back on, on one of those mats that has the little hoopy thing, you know, is he going to reach and grab? Does he realize that if he squeezes something, it makes a, a squeaking sound? Um, we want to look and see if he's interacting with his environment. Social skills. Um, a primary focus from birth to 12 months is the child's response to adults. The child's ability to sustain his own wants and needs in order to share with others begins to increase as the child reaches his second birthday. So we don't want to put too much pressure on the kid too soon. Um, during the second year, the infant expands on his relationships with others, primarily adults, and engages in increasingly sophisticated social behavior. So think about two-year-olds. This is a lot of times when you start having little tea parties and they start sharing and playing with their, their little friends. From 24 to 36 months, the focus changes as the child's interest in peers increases. So we do want to look for that switch from being parent-focused to child, other child-focused between 24 and 36 months. Social skills, at birth to two, the infant attends selectively to faces and discriminates between self and others and is attentive when you try to play with, with it. At two months, they may smile in response to stimuli. Crying is used in order to get something. And they tend to reciprocate with social partners. So if one person smiles, the child will smile back or, you know, there's, there's a lot of back and forth interaction. Three months, the child develops a social smile, so they actually may smile when you walk into the room, and they respond differently to different facial expressions. So you can start with happy, mad, sad, all that stuff, and see that they react differently. At six months, they show more interest in objects than people and enjoy parent-initiated social play. So encouraging parents not to get freaked out. If the kid is really involved in objects, in blocks and things, um, or balls or whatever they're playing with, and less involved, excited about always wanting to have human interaction. Nine months, the child uses adults for social reference, taking cues from their behavior, actively imitates and participates in social games with their with their partners, whether it's parents or siblings. Um, and this is the time children will start to mimic you a little bit. Nine to 15 months, stranger anxiety appears, imitation skills are firmly established, and the child will maintain proximity to their caregiver. So, yes, we're going to have some attachment anxiety here. That's okay. That's developmentally appropriate. 15 to 24 months, parent-infant interactions become increasingly verbal. The child engages most of the time in solitary activity watching other children. Okay. So it's not unusual for 15 to 24 months for kids to be playing in a sandbox by themselves and watching other kids. 24 to 36 months is when they start to really engage with other kids. So developmentally appropriate practices help children develop the same self-sufficient functional outcomes as their peers. We want to help them get on target with their peers as much as possible. Play-based learning in small groups rather than one-to-one -one instruction is often helpful because they're going to learn from their peers. Small group activities are prefer preferred to su support social competency as well. Not only are they learning by watching how Johnny throws the ball, but they're also learning to take turns and interact with one another.
Objectives for activities need to be embedded into everyday routines and activities. So if we want to increase the amount that, that Johnny's talking and increase the amount that he actually verbalizes what he needs, you know, we want to incorporate that into the routine. So in asking him, what do you want to do? And if he says, I want to go play, what do you want to play with? And encouraging him to talk more and really articulate what he wants. Adult responsiveness to the child's interests and needs um, are, is important. And we support learning through scaffolding. And we'll talk about that in a second. Assessments are to be more natural and in contact with the child's regular functions, play, and daily living activities. And that's going to change as the child moves from being at home all the time to daycare to, you know, pre-K. Children are actively engaged in learning and participate as fully as possible in decision-making. Yep, we want to help them advocate for themselves. What would you like to do today? And we recognize the importance of children's families as their first teacher and best advocate. In considering which goals and objectives should be selected, we need to consider, does the outcome have an immediate benefit and provide an opportunity for the child to become more independent and function better in natural environments? So, again, if we're talking about him standing on one leg and balancing, probably not. Um, if we're talking about him learning how to put on his shoes, well, then yes. So, you know, that's the wonderful thing with Velcro now. Can he put on his socks? Okay, that's step, step one. Can he put on shoes with Velcro? That's step two. Can he put on shoes with laces? That's phase three. But we want to help him through the process. Does the outcome allow the child to learn a skill that will result in learning other skills? So, you know, think about how we learned math. But when kids are growing up, you know, the first thing we want him to do is roll over. The second thing we want him to do is rock. The third thing is to scoot and then to crawl and then to pull up on furniture. You know, we want to identify each one of these as an independent goal. Have him do that. Score. He did that. That's going to help him achieve the next goal of whatever. Are the outcomes functional across multiple settings currently and in the future? Well, walking. Yeah, that's functional in multiple settings. He's going to need to move, move himself um, in multiple settings. He's going to need to feed himself in multiple settings. So we want to focus on these goals that are practical. And can the outcomes be carried carried out in everyday routines, activities, and places. If you're teaching the child how to squat, no, that's not something that's probably going to be carried out in every everyday routines. If you're teaching him how to walk, yes, that can be carried out in everyday routines. So we do want to fo focus on the ones that are meaningful. Four key elements of activity-based interventions. Activities and actions are initiated by children because they're more likely to attract and hold a child's attention and maintain their involvement if the child was the one that said, hey, let's do this. Training and intervention are embedded within the routine and involves the systematic use of appropriate antecedents and consequences, which naturally occur during ongoing classroom activities. You may be going, what does that mean? Antecedents, you know, what triggers the child to do this? You know, if it is time to switch stations, you know, maybe they have multiple stations around the room. Um, maybe the teacher rings a bell. So Johnny knows when he hears the bell, it's time to move to the next station. And what are the consequences when you go to the correct place? There's, there's some sort of reward. 
when you don't go to the correct place or follow directions, there is some sort of consequence. So we want to make sure that we're integrating whatever we want him to do. If it's following instructions, then, you know, we can integrate that in the classroom. We can integrate that at home. Um, and we want to address skills for the child that are functional and generative. Yeah. Seven types of learning. Induction, which it means comparisons between and among objects and ideas to make new discoveries. And I want you to remember that we're all learning in this process. The child is learning about life. Parents are learning about their child. And we are learning about the family. So we can use induction each one of us can use induction in a different way. So uh, to make a comparison, how is Johnny different at home and at school? That's something that we can ask the parents. Um, if we're working with Johnny, you have a cat and a dog. How is the kitty different than the dog? That's induction. Cognitive dissonance engages surprise and intrigue. And there's asking, so how did that happen? And if you've ever watched Curious George, you know, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there because Curious George wonders a lot. Curious wonders about how the man in the yellow hat did blah, blah, blah. Social interaction. Ideas are bounced around with other people for richer outcomes than you could get if it was just coming from one person. And this is modeled a lot in the show Sid the Science Kid. And yes, I love PBS, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but in that, the teacher asks, you know, how can we make this happen? And then the class brainstorms ways that they may achieve a certain outcome or why something happens. Physical experiences. And I included in this also rhythmic experiences. Obviously, children remember things that are more physical, like when they count and they count with their fingers. You know, their thinking is still concrete. They're not formal operational yet, so they need to see things. So when they count with their fingers, they remember, how old are you? I'm three. You know, very, very rarely do kids go, I'm three. You know, it's almost always this way or, you know, however they make the three. Um, but we also want to have children learn through, through rhythm and books like Chicka Chicka Boom Boom or Sesame Street, all the songs in Sesame Street. Um, or The Cat in the Hat knows a lot about that, which all of those books rhyme. Um, children pick up on rhymes and rhythm a whole lot easier than if you're just throwing rote stuff at them. So we do want to integrate physical experiences. Revisiting. You know, think back. You know, I used to think that Johnny couldn't, you know, catch a ball. But when I looked again... You know, I realized that it wasn't that he couldn't catch the ball because of his gross motor skills. It was because his vision was too bad. And once we got him glasses, he was fine. So we want to revisit problems and maybe see if we can come up with different explanations. Competence. I can do this. And this skill helps me learn the next skill. So encouraging children to, you know, as they, when they put on their socks, give them kudos for that. Then when they learn how to put on their shoes, kudos for that. And then, you know, move up to tying, tying laces. And then play. Children learn through play all the time. They're mimicking. They're trying things out. They're exploring through play. They're exploring, you know, pretending to be a chef or a firefighter or whatever. Play is voluntary. It's meaningful. Um, it's symbolic. It's rule-governed. It's fun. And it's episodic. Um, so when you... Engage a child in play. You want to have them freely choose whatever it is. And 
get them so involved that they're kind of blocking out everything else. You've seen kids get into their zone where they're building a house with Legos or doing something. Um, and a lot of times they will be, they're, they'll be building a house or playing dress up or doing something symbolic. And they learn from all of these things. So scaffolding, like I told you before, is a teaching method that enables students to solve a problem through a gradual shedding of outside assistance. And the example here, the student's having difficulty learning. So the teacher checks in with the student during independent work time and verbally reinforces the effort so she doesn't give up. The student begins to show frustration and stops working, so the teacher offers additional instruction and redirects her, reminding her about the fact that she's going to get to do something fun when she finishes. And then the student picks up again. Well, that's, you know, an older kid. For younger kids, you know, we can do the same thing, going back to the shoes, because that's one of those that's easy to break down. Um, first, we teach them how to put their socks on. And then when they do that themselves, it's like, okay, you don't need me to do that anymore. You're, you're a big boy. Um, then they start learning how to put on their shoes. And if they have difficulty, we step in, we observe until they start hitting a point where we know that they're stuck. And we can help them, teach them a little bit, and then step back then they'll master that skill. And we keep moving on that way. We let them do what they can to the point they get stuck. And then we step in and assist and motivate them further. We can use a portfolio, including photographs, checklists, monitoring forms, social play records, anecdotal records, scribbles and drawings, love them, and early attempts at painting or recordings of language samples in order to document progress. So you want to look at what are you trying to document and what's the best way to document it. Fine motor skills is going to be probably coloring or something, whereas speech is going to be more of a recording. Guidelines to enhance development. Provide positive care and education from a consistent, limited number of adults. Be sympathetic to the wide diversity of development and cultural diversity of children and families. Provide appropriate activities within a flexible yet predictable schedule. You know, it's circle time. Well, that's great. You can do different things during circle time, but children know it's circle time and that's where they want to be. Provide an attractive, inviting, and safe physical environment for play and daily routines. And supervise children's activities, respecting their increasing need for exploration, risk-taking, and self-regulation, which is the nice way of saying parents kind of back off a little bit and let Junior do his thing um, instead of always being up there in his business. Maintain an atmosphere that supports problem solving and increasingly more challenging activities to stimulate growth. Know when to be involved, direct support and guide children's play and daily routines, and when to step back and observe and allow the, allow the child to take initiatives that are challenging but not frustrating. Work collaboratively and in a coaching model with other adults and family in the best interest of the infant or toddler. You know, let them kind of take the wheel. We are, we are coaches. We're cheerleaders there. But they are the actual players in this, in this in scenario. And be willing to reflect on current strategies to change or adapt in the best infant interest of each infant, toddler, and family. So there are various formats for effective observation. The family plays a critical role in the screening, evaluation, and assessment process. Involving the family in play, team meetings, and goal development is helpful for engagement. And it's important to remember that as the child changes, the family changes, and vice versa. So 
to accommodate that and understand all of these changes, it's most helpful to provide services in the most natural service delivery environments possible. Because then we're going to get a snapshot of what's going on and how things are impacting one another. Alrighty, everybody. I hope you have a great weekend. Um, if there are no questions, then we will call it for today. And we're going to start on group and individual interventions for depression on Tuesday, which I'm super excited about. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe either in your podcast player or on YouTube. You can attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes by subscribing at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. Use coupon code counselor toolbox to get a 20% discount off your order this month.